This podcast um, is to talk with you about <clears throat> the Vermont special education rules, to look at the history of special education, to give you an appreciation of how far we've come and how much is at stake. It's important that you, as a building administrator or as a central office administrator, that you have a clear understanding of the rights of students with disabilities. You can find the Vermont Special Education Rules on the Agency of Education website, and I've also provided a link for you so that you can get to them easily. It's important that you have an understanding of these rules and that you're able to locate information that you need quickly. As we think about legal issues in special education, it's really important to understand um, how far we've come. So if we look back in 1948, only 12% of all children with disabilities received some form of special education. By the early 1950s, special education services and programs were available in school districts but without great results. Um, for example, students that were in classes, um, they were special education classes, and they were considered to be unable to perform academic tasks. So instead, they went to special schools or classes that focused on manual skills like weaving and bead stringing. Um, and so even though the programs existed, it was clear that discrimination was still as strong as ever for those with disabilities in our schools. One of the first cases that we'll take a look at is Beattie versus Board of Education. This was from 1919. This case regarded a student who had cerebral palsy, um, speech and motor difficulties, his memory and intellect were not affected. Um, he was in the regular class until fifth grade when the State Department of Education found him. Ultimately, this case ended up with a ruling that, that Beattie would be sent to a school for the deaf. In the ruling, the judge stated his physical condition produces a depressing and nauseating effect upon the teachers and school children. Now it's important to remember that this case, this was in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So this case came about, as you know, students that have cerebral palsy often have difficulty controlling their limbs and included, including controlling their drooling reflex. Um, it's difficult for them to chew and swallow. And so this student had been in regular classes until fifth grade. The agency, Department of Education in Wisconsin found him and decided that he needed to be removed. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision said the right of a child of school age to attend the public schools of this state cannot be insisted when its, which is a key word, its presence therein is harmful to the best interests of the school. So in other words, 
he had no right to attend school because it was bothering the other students. Um, there was one dissenting judge who said there is no evidence that as a fact, this boy's presence had any harmful influence on other children. Fast forwarding, we begin to see the parallel path of civil rights and disability rights, because as you think about it, disability rights truly are civil rights. And so we go with Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. As you know, and um, I know there is one group that has this particular court case, the court ruled that it was illegal practice under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to arbitrarily discriminate against any group of people. The court then applied this principle to the schooling of children, holding that a separate education for African-American students is not an equal education. And this is a very famous ruling that we all know about, and the outcome was that separate but equal would no longer be accepted. Brown then set the president precedent for future discrimination cases in education. People with disabilities were recognized as another group whose rights had been violated because of arbitrary discrimination. For children, the discrimination occurred because they were denied access to schools because of their disabilities. Using Brown as their legal precedent, students with disabilities claimed that their segregation and exclusion from school violated their opportunity for an equal education under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause. If Brown could not segregate by race, then schools would not be able to segregate or otherwise discriminate by ability and disability. In the 1960s, parents began to become better advocates for educational opportunities for their children overall. Um, and parents of students with disabilities were realizing that segregated special classes were not the most appropriate education, educational setting for their students. By the end of the 1960s, landmark court cases set the stage for the enactment of federal laws that began to protect the rights of children with, a, with disabilities and their parents. As a result of the numerous historical court cases, federal legislation for individuals with disabilities began to develop in the early 1970s. One of those laws was Section 504 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act. Um, and you hear a lot about Section 504 in your schools. It was not originally meant to be an educational access um, act. Um, it was a Civil Rights Act law that was enacted in 1973. And if you think about what was happening in 1973, you were having people, um, warriors from uh, the Vietnam War returning with disabilities. Um, and so this Section 504 was created to prevent discrimination against all individuals with disabilities in programs that receive federal funds. Now, clearly, schools are programs that receive federal funds, and so Section 504 then ensures students equal opportunity to all school activities, and it prohibits discrimination against students with disabilities in federally funded programs such as schools.
What it basically states is that individuals with disabilities cannot be excluded from participation in, denied benefits of, or subjected to discrimination under any program or activity that's receiving federal financial assistance. This was the first significant act to, per, to protect the rights of students with disabilities. Um, it gave students with disabilities the right to be protected from discrimination in public education and in the workplace. There are, there's a two-pronged eligibility criteria um, to be eligible for protections under Section 504. First is that you must have a disability. This is not clearly defined what constitutes a disability. And the disability must have a substantial impact on a major life activity. So again, a um, substantial impact is not clearly defined. So if you look at the difference between students that will receive services under an IEP or students that will be protected under Section 504. In an IEP, there's to be eligible for an IEP, to be eligible for special education, there are very specific criteria for each of the 12 disability categories. And it is also laid out very clearly in the special education rules who can make that um, diagnosis for the students. Under 504, it's a much less specific criteria for disability. Um, in, under an IEP, you'll remember that there are three gates for eligibility. Most of you have probably had the experience of being in an eligibility meeting. If not, I would encourage you to get yourself that experience before um, you become a building administrator or a central office administrator. So the second gate of eligibility is that you have to show adverse effect, that the disability um, has an adverse effect on the student's achievement. That's very clearly defined in the regulations um, that you have to show three of six, um, three out of six measures for each basic skill area, and that that you have to de demonstrate that the student is in the lowest 15th percentile compared to their peers. Under Section 504, it simply says that the disability must have a substantial impact on a major life function. No definition for substantial impact. That's left up to the teams making the decision. For the third gate for the IEP, the team has to show that the student requires specialized instruction that is not otherwise available. So in other words, they need something that they can only get through special education. Under 504, you'll see that a 504 plan typically has accommodations in it. So that remember that the point of 504 is to allow access to, um, to the environment that other people without disabilities have access to. So what accommodations can we put in place that allow this student to have access to their learning environment? Um, 
So a student may not meet the strict criteria for special education, but they can still be served under a 504 plan. Um, as you know from probably having seen IEPs and 504 plans, they're quite different. Um, typically a 504 plan might be a couple of pages and IEP can be 10, 15, 20 pages long. Um, there is a lot more paperwork and a lot more parental rights um, really specified and timeline specified um, for the special education process than there is under the 504 process. In um, the first federal um, legislation specifically targeting um, students with disabilities was Public Law, Public Law 94142. It was called the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. That language becomes important. Um, and so because the victories that were being won in these court cases for students with disabilities in the early 1970s, then parents and student advocates began to lo lobby Congress for federal laws and money that would ensure that students with disabilities got an education that would meet their needs, not just be stuck somewhere, but an education that would meet their needs. Years of exclusion, segregation, and denial of basic educational opportunities to students with disabilities and their families really set an imperative for a civil rights law guaranteeing these students access to the education system. And the first national special education law in 1975, Public Law 94-142. Through this law, it's evident that Congress recognized the necessity of special education for children with disabilities, and that Congress was very concerned about the widespread um, discrimination. Thus, they enacted um, Public Law 94-142. This law was signed into law by President Gerald Ford. And since Public Law 94-142 was enacted in 1975, the number of students receiving special education has increased by more than 80%. Um, what this Public Law 94-142 or the Education for All Handicapped Children Act did was set forth federal procedural safeguards for children with disabilities and their parents. The law outlined the entire foundation upon which current special education practices rest. Um, the EHA was signed by President Ford on November 18th of 1975 and Senator Robert Stafford of Vermont said, today, Congress makes a very important statement of the principle about how we intend our handicapped children to be treated in the educational process. Unfortunately, we cannot change the attitudes of those who equate handicap with inferior. Attitudes and prejudices cannot be legislated away. They will only be changed by the will of good men. Moving forward into the 1990s, um, the education of all the education for all handicapped children act was reauthorized and so as you know reauthorization occurs 
and it is the act of amending and renewing um, a law. So in 1990, EHA was reauthorized in, and it is now, it was then IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It continued to uphold the provisions set forth in 94-142. Now remember that I said the language would become important. So here we begin to see the beginning of language that is person-first language. In other words, instead of handicapped children, it is individuals with disabilities. In July of 2005, IDEA was reauthorized once again. It is now Public Law 108-446, and it's still referred to as IDEA, except um, we call it IDEA 2004 or IDEIA, and it was um, co coexisting with the No Child Left Behind Act, and so it's Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act is the technical name for it. We talked about the three gates for special education, so let me reiterate those. You have to have a disability based on really specific criteria that you can find in the rules. Vermont has 12 disability categories. The disability has to have an adverse effect on the student in a basic skill area. Um, the student must be below the 15th percentile in three of six measures. And the student requires specialized instruction beyond what the regular and remedial programs can provide. In an IEP, you'll see um, present levels of performance, including how does the disability look in a classroom? What's the impact of the disability on classroom performance? Measurable, measurable goals and objectives, the exact services that will be provided for the student, the frequency, the duration, the personnel, the location, um, what accommodations will be provided, including in-state testing, what related service services will be provided, and a transition plan if the student is 16 years or older. You'll also see in current IEPs contingencies for each of the educational environments that are currently in place due to COVID. And so those three environments are fully remote, fully in-person, or a hybrid combination of remote and in-person. Once we've done student um, discipline, we'll begin to talk about manifestation determination and how discipline, suspension, and behavior is really different and has different considerations for students with disabilities. In order for us to really grab onto that concept, we have to understand the history of special education how students become eligible, and how hard fought the rights have been. Um, so we will revisit this, and this is background knowledge for you as we move into student discipline, 
student rights and begin thinking about how disciplining students with disabilities is different. Thanks for listening.